Alright, welcome back. What's that? So I just sometimes find it's good to read the description uh, for the event so I can actually remind myself what I said I was going to talk about. Uh, and actually just give you a framework for kind of why this might be an important topic. So, uh, all schools of Buddhism acknowledge that the development of citta is an essential aspect of the awakening process. Within classic mindfulness teachings, it encompasses the entirety of the third foundation of practice. At its core, it encourages you to recognize the presence and absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. In its fruition, it points to embodying a heart and mind of wisdom, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So it's a kind of a big deal, uh, this chitta business. Um, and it's really, it's one of these words I usually, I usually like to just use the word chitta because there's not really an English equivalent. Probably the, 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 the equivalent that would be maybe the most accurate would be like sort of the attitude of mind. What is the attitude of mind? And I don't know about you, but I have a whole range of different attitudes in my mind much of the time. So um, when we look at sort of the structure of mindfulness, so maybe I can start with mindfulness because many of you are probably familiar with, with the way that that's structured, is, is mindfulness in, in classic teachings and really pretty much uh, very popular now is the Satipatthana, uh, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. And it really, the Buddha encourages us to be aware of experience in these four kinds of domains. So he just kind of very pragmatically kind of takes human experiences and puts it in these four categories. The category of the body, uh, of the physical, of the five physical senses and, 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 and body, physical. The category of feeling or Vedana, which is just uh, the, the, the impression created by the sense. So we have five senses that you learned in kindergarten in the sense of the mind, thinking, and we experience every sense as either being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, and of course, as you know, you probably are, your favorite one is the pleasant, and you're not so fond of the unpleasant feeling. And that creates a whole wide range of issues for most of us. And then we have this third category, which is mindfulness of mind, which is, I find, has been frustrating to me because well, what is mind? It's just too big. So mindfulness of the mind, heart, mind, chitta, and then in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness of dhammas, or really categories of experience, or what I would say is mental activity. Uh, what, what is going on in, in the cognitive experience. And so the third one I think is the most elusive. What is mindfulness of mind? So... Chitta here uh, best translates as mind, and uh, so we have mindfulness. And we also actually, if anybody here has studied the work of Daniel Siegel, he's kind of been toting this thing for years, that we actually, as a, as a Western culture, we actually have no definition of mind. Uh, the, uh, no, like mental health and psychology, therapeutic uh, lexicon, they actually don't have an agreed-upon definition for the word mind which, of course, is problematic. But good news is the Buddha had very clear definitions of the mind, what the mind is. And he talks about mind in, in three ways in the earliest teachings of the Pali, the Pali Canon. Uh, and maybe I'll just offer a quick disclaimer here. Because I said at the beginning, all schools of Buddhism talk about citta. 
I, I certainly have a, a, a limited frame that I'm going to talk about this evening, so I'm really going to be talking about it from the earliest teachings of, of the Pali Canon, which is really the Theravadan tradition, um, and then maybe a little bit of Abhidharma, or really probably a lot of Abhidharma, and then also more how we would recognize it today as emotion, because I think uh, emotion is a hot topic right now, and um, so that's kind of the lens, I suppose. But in the earliest discourses, it's talked about in three ways. It's talked about the mind as manas or manasakaro. So when they talk about mind, they talk about manasakaro, which just means attention, which, of course, as we know, is a primary function of mind. It's probably, arguably, probably the most important function that the mind performs, the ability to pay attention. And how well you're able to pay attention actually has tremendous benefits on a whole range of skills that we have. So, of course, as you know, when you learn mindfulness practice, the first thing that we learn how to do is to take attention, place it on the breath, and, and sustain that. Uh, nothing's necessarily special about that so much, but attention is something that needs to be trained. So we don't really liberate attention. It doesn't have that quality, but it, it's a function. It has a, a very functional purpose. Uh, so that the Buddha talks about manasakaro, or attention, a lot. Also, we have this other word, uh, vinyana, which is one of the five aggregates, which also translates as consciousness. And so consciousness is sort of the event that we always find ourselves in. Every moment, there's a form, there's a feeling, there's a perception, there's a, a, an inclination to do something, and all of that happens within consciousness. And the Buddha's not that interested, really, in what consciousness is, as much as he's very interested in what are the factors that contribute to it. So when, we, when consciousness arises in each moment, what else also arises with it? Well, sounds and sights and tastes and colors and thoughts and plans and blaming and judging. There's a whole, if you start watching your consciousness, there's a lot of different things going on. And so as we become more aware of our consciousness, this is really what mindfulness is. So if you wanted a little consciousness plus awareness equals mindfulness. And so the more mindful we are of what's going on, you know, the better choices we have and the more ability we have to manage difficult situations. And uh, that's good for us to be able to do that. And then the third one, chitta, is another way that he talks about mind. And this is what shows up in the third foundation of practice. This is really what wants to be liberated. We want to liberate the chitta from the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is kind of the, the common... Uh, kind of parlance of early Buddhism greed, hatred, and delusion we want to be free from that but greed, hatred, and delusion are very uh, kind of almost a barbaric frame uh, because they're, they're very complex ideas there's lots of ways in which we can be caught up in hatred there can be like intense hatred and rage and contempt all the way to just being slightly irritated and they all fit within that category and the other thing <clears throat> I think about chitta that's important is chitta is not always good. I think that we hear chitta or we hear bodhicitta in the Mahayana school. Uh, chitta is not always healthy or wholesome or constructive. Hatred is a kind of chitta. Jealousy is a kind of chitta. Uh, envy is a type of chitta. Uh, greed is also a type of chitta. So I think sometimes we can kind of start thinking that, oh, chitta is like the point. Uh, but no, actually, the, the point is to be aware of the chitta 
and be able to actually liberate ourselves, to free ourselves from the destructive forces of, of that chitta. Right? And so that's, you know, that'll keep you busy most of the day if you really kind of watch and work <laughs> on that. You know, we get caught in all kinds of destructive, unhealthy, unuseful, unskillful chitta as much of the time. And sometimes we actually can enjoy, and, and we sometimes find our unhealthy chittas a little pleasant. Sometimes we enjoy uh, criticizing people or, or devaluing people or thinking we're better than, morally superior. And we, do, we get caught up in all these things, and we, we maybe don't want to admit it so much, but this is what the Buddha calls the honey-tipped arrow, where it's like, it's kind of, you know, it's that kind of shit-talking that we get into, like, oh, did you see or did you hear those people? You know, this whole those people business, you know, and it's like, we don't even know who those people are. And we have all these attitudes and stories and, and, and implicit bias against those, those kind of experiences. And that can, that can actually can sometimes be pleasant. I know if we really sit and get honest, we might find that we enjoy anger sometimes. We enjoy uh, these experiences. But they, they, they come with a price, don't they? Like we kind of can get that emotional hangover. Or we, we notice it is a honey-tipped arrow. And when the honey's gone, it's just, ouch. You know, and so we just want to, we don't want to like think that we need to stop doing that as much as we might want to think about how can we be aware of the ways in which we do do it. Um, And this is where we kind of um, can try to break that idea of like doing it right or doing it wrong. I know that there's a lot of black and white thinking with practice in general and everybody wants to be, do it right and and, and then the wrong and I'm not good at this and, and that kind of black and white thinking is... It's just a bad, bad barometer for Dharma practice, you know. So when we look at sort of, um, there's a couple different ways that chitta is talked about, and I think it's really important to, to acknowledge the complexity, actually, of the term. And the first way the Buddha talks about it is a, as a noun, so as an agent. So a chitta is just something that knows. It's something that knows an object. It knows that's the sound, that's the bell. I like the bell, pleasant bell. It just knows things, and, and that's part of its function. It's, it, it's part of how we learn, and through memory and analysis, uh, that chitta knows things, and that's where it, do, it, that's where it, it is very valuable to us. Um, it's also known as an instrument. So it has an instrument-like quality where it organizes other aspects of our cognitive experience. It, it organizes uh, perception and, and choices and logic and reason and feeling, and it kind of organizes all these other faculties of mind to give us a, a cohesion and it acts like an instrument that kind of brings things together. And it can be experienced that way. So there could be a kind of grabbing, grabbing at energy in the mind, wanting this. There can be a resistant energy in the mind. I don't get rid of that, and I want to get this, and I want to get rid of that, and I want to have this, and I want to get everything sort of organized just in the right way so things will be pleasant for me all the time. And, you know, we spend a fair amount of time doing that one. But we maybe don't know or we're not aware of that. The other way that he talks about, about chitta, the way I really kind of want to unpack it further this evening, is actually, uh, which is really, I think, gives us a deep sense of appreciation for how complex it can be, is actually the whole cognizing uh, aspect function itself, the whole mind that puts, puts everything together. And that's really what I think where we kind of can get confused about this is where it becomes sort of the, um, the psycho-emotional process. So this is where thoughts and feelings and all of these other things can kind of come together. 
So it's, it, it's, it, it's complex, but it's also not necessarily all that difficult to be able to recognize. So when we are sitting, breathing, feeling, sensation, it's really kind of a reflection on seeing the mind, I think, actually through the lens of a behavior. So uh, the mind um, has a behavior-like quality to it. I think chitta is more, uh, more practical if we see it as a verb, as something that happens, and also seeing it as something um, that's behavioral. So what is the mind doing? And we find that the mind does a whole range of things. And one of the kind of um, dichotomies that we can get into uh, is, is, you know, like, so the Buddha would say we want to cultivate wholesome states of mind and we want to uh, abandon unwholesome states of mind. So we could also think of chitta as an attitude or a state of mind. What is the state of the mind at any given moment? And we oftentimes don't necessarily recognize or think to even check the state of the mind. And so in, in a lot of practice, it's like check your attitude, check your attitude, check your attitude. Someone asked a question earlier about how to bring this to daily life, and it's just a constant <coughs> reminder to check in with the attitude of the mind. Because we don't usually recognize attitudes of mind. We usually actually, the thing about it is, I don't have my sunglasses with me, I sometimes use that analogy, is chitta... Uh, the third foundation is kind of like a filter. You know, so it's like, it, 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 it's the lens that we kind of wear in every single moment. There's a whole range of different, we probably have like 50, 52 different pairs of glasses that we can wear. We can have the resistance. So if I wake up in the morning and let's just say I'm frustrated and I have on the frustration filter in my chitta, in my mind, everything in my kitchen is frustrating. The toaster's, toaster's not in the right place. There's crumbs. My son didn't put the thing away. The orange juice. It's like everything is wrong when I have that kind of... But I don't stop and go, oh, I have on the frustration lens today. Oh, when I have on the frustration lens, everything is frustrating. Right? We don't think of that, do we? You ever notice when you're kind of irritated, everything is irritating? Everything. Like everything. My shoes don't fit right. My pants are too big. It's warm in here. You gave, this person gave me a dirty look. It's just like everything. It's just... But we, 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 we don't think that, that, like, that we're creating that. We don't take responsibility for it. Right? So we have on that kind of... And that's the behavior. So that lens creates all these little... Have you ever noticed when you're in a good mood, everything's usually pretty cool? I could be in a, get plenty of sleep, I wake up in the morning, I'm in a good mood, the, the, the milk could be out, the refrigerator could be open, all kinds of shit could be going on. And I'd be like, yeah, it's no big deal, I'll just clean it up and deal with it. No big deal, right? You know, one day it's a huge problem, and we need to have a talk about it. And some days it's like, I just do it. So what, 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 what is it that factors in? Why is one day different than another? And it's actually really my attitude of mind. It's my chitta. Right? So we, it's just, I think that one thing that the Buddha does that's sometimes frustrating is he really is actually asking us to take complete and total responsibility for everything. Like, really, everything? 
But my wife left the milk out again. <laughs> you know, and so it's like really hard. And the, the other thing I think that's really important is actually, um, is we sometimes, we, he also was encouraging us to not, because we maybe have some unwholesomeness or some destructive or some, you know, things in our mind that aren't great, is to not feel bad about having the destructive chitta. And so he, he's not so interested um, in, in sort of qualitative, like good, right, good. He's interested in actually what's helpful to you. So in the whole practice of the third foundation, one of the things I think that people miss out on is he's really asking you to recognize the presence and absence of particular qualities. So if we might have hatred in our mind, we could think, I have hatred in my mind. You're like, oh, I'm a bad person. I have hatred in my mind. I'm not supposed to have hatred in my mind. I'm not supposed to be a Buddhist. I'm supposed to have abandoned greed, hatred, and delusion. And I got hatred. I got greed. I got a whole bunch of stuff in my mind. I got a whole row of characters in my mind. And then we can take that personally and think that we're not supposed to do that. And this, I think, is the nature of what we call a spiritual bypass. Is and we start to to fool ourselves if we start to think, or we have maybe denial. A lot of times we have denial over aspects of our mind that we don't want to see, that we don't like, and we think that we're bad or wrong for having it. And this is a big, I think, a big trap that a lot of practitioners get into, where they start to hear the teachings, or they start to think, oh, I'm not supposed to be angry, or I'm not supposed to be upset, or I'm not supposed to be irritated, I'm supposed to love everybody, and they're all living beings everywhere. It's like, really? <laughs> all living beings everywhere? Most of us very rarely will find that we actually have that attitude. Right? It's a nice goal, but it's also we don't necessarily find that to be true. And if we pretend or think that we do, we're really just fooling ourselves. Does that make sense? So one of the things I like to, to borrow from that I really think is a great, um, and, I, and I do a lot of this in my secular work now, working with, with, with substance abuse and mental health programs is actually thinking of these attitudes of mind as not necessarily wholesome or unwholesome, but actually constructive or destructive. Right? Because it takes the charge out of it. Because if unwholesome is bad, and we get, anytime Dharma gets in this moralistic field, uh, we kind of can get into trouble. So the Buddha is not really interested in, in morality so much as much as really he's interested in what works to help liberate the mind. So if I have a destructive state of mind or destructive thinking, uh, he's not saying that I'm bad or wrong for having it. He's saying, well, if you recognize it now, what are some things that you could do to overcome it? And that's what the liberation practice is, is how do I liberate myself from these experiences? So if I'm going to liberate myself from a constructive, I mean, if I'm going to liberate, liberate myself from a destructive state of mind, I have to be willing and able to recognize when I am in it. So it's actually an encouragement. There's this teacher who I really love, uh, who's very kind of, he's a Burmese teacher named uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya. Some of you might be familiar with Utejaniya. Uh, and his, he's, he's a Burmese master, and he teaches in a way that's very sort of not traditional Burmese. And he talks about, like, if you go to him and talk about, oh, I have all this hatred in my mind, he's like, oh, great. He's like, so he's like, good for you. He's like, you're seeing it. And he has this book. It says, don't look down on the defilements because they will laugh at you. 
And so he's like, his whole thing is like, recognize the destructive states of mind. Recognize the unskillful, unwholesome. Because if you can recognize it, then you can do something about it. If you cannot recognize it and you don't know you have those, that filter on, there's not much you can do except for going around and assuming that everything is irritating. Right? So he's like super stoked. If you go, and I've never worked with him personally, but I've heard many stories. Some of my teachers have sat with him, and it's like, if you go in and you're like, oh my God, I'm so frustrated and angry, and I'm having all these terrible thoughts about my childhood, and I just want to get out of here, and I want to just like kill everybody. He's like, yes, good practice. <laughs> He's like, you're doing great. He's like, you're recognizing the defilements. They use this word defilement, which I think is not great. You know, it's so derogatory. This is why I think that for us here, it's really uh, good, and I, I borrow this from my, my, lang- from my work with emotional intelligence, is really seeing, like, is this a constructive state of mind? Is this a constructive attitude of mind? Is this a constructive state of mind? And even is this kind of habit pattern, this thinking, is this constructive or is it destructive? Like, so like a real obvious one that we see is like we get into a situation, Something's wrong. Whose fault is it? Blaming. So blaming is a very obvious, common, destructive state of mind. It's a, it's a state of mind, it's an attitude of resistance, followed by a devaluing of the other person, maybe even some emotion of contempt. You ever find yourself in blaming? Kind of churning that around, like, well, I mean, I... If you didn't do what you did, then I wouldn't have had to do what I, you know, it's your fault. And is that cooperative? Does that go anywhere? I'm right, you're wrong. You know, there's not a lot of room for conversation in that kind of statement. And if we look, of course, I don't want to go there, but if we look at our world and certainly the political landscape, we can see how destructive that is. And one of the elements I think that's so interesting one of the ingredients that, that we can tell if something is constructive is, is a willingness for further cooperation. So it's actually really about cooperation, right? which is actually the nature of kindness, it's the nature of empathy, it's the nature of compassion. It can be like, like I'm really angry with you right now, and I actually think that you, know, you owe me an apology, and blah, 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 but like, we can talk about it. Like I'm willing to cooperate. I'm not, uh, I'm available that. And so I think in our relational life um, this cooperation, this willingness to sort of say, hey, like I'm not okay with this but I'm actually open to, to seeing if we can work it out because I value the relationship. I'm angry with you right now. I'm upset with you but I care about you so let's talk it out rather than like, you know what? We see a lot of that and that would be, uh, in the worst case scenario, that was when we use the emotion of contempt to sort of just, we're done here. And that, that would be destructive. And so I think that we can, th- th- this framework works really good um, when we're trying to just be aware more of the mind and the emotional experience that we find ourselves in. And I'll be honest, I, I mean, I have these events, I don't know, 10, 12 times a day. You know, you, we get caught in these kind of experiences, you know, uh, that get us. We have these emotional episodes, and then we get, we, we, we get caught into whatever uh, our typical frame for that is, which is good because we can sort of diagnose ourselves. 
and you probably only have like a couple things, right? Like we either become defensive or we become conflict avoidant or we all have our kind of not great strategies to deal with this stuff. And also I think when we, probably, when we think about it internally in our own experience, we, we can kind of become aware of this way in which we don't cooperate with our own minds. Uh, where we kind of maybe the self-blame or the like I shouldn't or I should um, and we actually can kind of get into these destructive relationships with ourselves the way that we view ourselves the way that we view our behaviors and our choices and all of these kinds of experiences these are all different kinds of chittas and one thing I like about um the Abhidharma, which is a, a Buddhist text that came about a hundred years after the Buddha died, which is actually very revered by the Theravada tradition. Um, but some of the early Buddhist people don't like it so much because it's not, you know, traditional. But one thing that I like about the Abhidharma is it came a hundred years after the Buddha died, and what happened, you had all these monks who really were doing all this practice, and they developed this manual of Abhidharma where they took chittas and they broke them down into 52 categories. And what they call chaitesikas, which are like little chittas. So they took hatred and they broke it down into 13 things. And they took uh, constructive chitta, wholesome chitta, and they broke it down into 26 beautiful mental factors. Uh, and and it, 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 some people are like, oh, it's too much, it's not. But when you start to look at some of these things, it's really quite quite interesting to see if you can recognize. And it includes things like ethical or, or neutral things like des- desire and decision and choice, all the way down into things like envy, uh, and then the beautiful set of things like faith and confidence and authenticity and, and conscience and concern. And it gives us a range and I think uh, uh, a deep appreciation for what is it that we can recognize in our mind? You know, how early can we catch it, right? Do we, can we catch it as we reach for the frustrated glasses and we're about to put, can we actually see ourselves putting them on? And be like, ah, uh, no. You know? Because these, um, these, these, these chittas, these kind of filters we get into, they're, they're, A, they're very familiar to us. And what they do on a, on a moment-to-moment level is that, uh, in Buddhist psychology, the theory is that, of course, the mind arises and passes in every moment. So, so that's why I don't really believe in... I use the language sometimes, but I actually don't believe that there's such a thing called a present moment because the present moment is actually moving. Right? You can't... There's no pause button. Yeah, we want to find the pause button. We meditate. We're like, okay, where's the... Stop. <laughs> you know? There's, there's no stop. There's maybe slow motion. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe slow motion. <laughs> but mostly it's just, it's just insanity, right? It's just ongoing, <laughs> uprising, passing. And so what happens is, is in every moment we kind of take on these little bit of a filter. And we notice that, like, our, so we look at our worldview. So my worldview changes throughout the whole day based on the kind of filter that I have. Right? So I, I, I can view the world with, with contempt or disappointment. I know when I look at the state of the world, sometimes I think we're screwed. I'm like, I don't even, I'm like actually practicing denial about the political landscape in our country on purpose. I sometimes look at the climate change stuff. You know, I look at some of the racial stuff and some of the, uh, you know, there's just a lot of really like bad stuff going on. 
And I sometimes can look at the world through the lens of like, we're just like, not going to make it. But some days I actually feel very hopeful. Some days I feel, you know, depending on what's going on, depending on whatever filter I'm wearing in that particular moment, I can think all kinds of different things about the world. I also can think all kinds of different things about myself. Like when I'm really angry, I don't like myself that much. When I'm sad or if I'm, in, if I am, if I'm like in a shame experience, I'm not particularly stoked about this Dave Smith guy. I'm like, oh, this is bad. But if I'm happy, if I'm in a joyous, if I'm content, I like myself. And so as we go through the day, we, we, our worldview changes, our self-view changes, and then the relationship between those two things changes. It's hard to keep up. You know, I have those moments in those days where I'm like, oh man, I'm pretty good at life. I, things are pretty good. Family's good. Work's good. Pretty good. And then, like, the next day, I'm, you know, on my back porch drinking coffee going, i got to figure, I'm like, I just don't have it together. Like, I just, I'm bad at life, I guess. I just, 42 years, I, I only have $380 in the bank. How did I, how have I been alive for this many years and only have this, you know, like, and then I collapse into this, like, whole thing. It's so hard to keep up. But I think where we want to keep up is we want to kind of use our practice as a way to gauge and to get a sense of like what are some of, what are some of the like not great glasses you wear? What are some of the lenses that you look through that kind of cause suffering that maybe put you in a place where you don't advocate for yourself or you don't do well in relationships, whether they're work, romantic, friends. These are all ways of practicing with, with really what they call mindfulness of mind or, or really mindfulness of chitta. I use the word chitta because I don't think we have an English word that actually gets to what that is. So there's the emotional experience, the, the, the cognitive experience. And when we have a, an emotional episode where the emotion is really, really high, um, like does anybody make really good choices when you're stark raving angry? And you're just totally full of rage. Do you, you know, do you say kind and benevolent things to the people around you? <laughs> no, we don't do good. So it's actually in our best interest to a. Uh, a little bit of take home on this is a. I think I, I always make a big plug for just to be honest with yourself. It's just I think mindfulness. One of the things mindfulness can do, uh, that can be really helpful, is it allows us to be honest about what's actually going on in our mind. And just own it. Because, you know, mindfulness is like a mirror. So when mindfulness is present, all it does is reflect back what's going on. And then what happens is if we, if we don't like it or we're not sure about it, we distort it, we manipulate it, we minimize, we get in denial. Oh, I'm not really, it's not really, that's not really happening. And then we actually lose the mindful moment because we distort the object in a way because we don't like it. We don't want it to be true. So this, this willingness to be honest about what is it internally that gets me? So there's a recognition, recognizing what are your destructive, not skillful, not useful things. And then the more you recognize those things, then you have this wonderful thing called choice. So if I recognize that I have the filter on, then I actually have a couple of choices. I'm like, well, I can encourage, do I want to encourage the frustrated state of mind? Sometimes I totally do. 
I'm like, well, let's walk around the house and see what else I can be frustrated about. <laughs> you want to go looking for evidence to plead your case. And you pull out the file and you're like, I got a whole file on how you're not doing it right. And, you know, it's like crazy. <laughs> right? So we have this choice of like, okay, well, maybe there's something else I would like to do here to kind of turn that ship around. Right? And one of the things that we notice in the research that I love about emotions and like constructive emotions and uh, really just having a healthy, for lack of a better word, a healthy and happy emotional life is actually being able to choose what you do when you become emotional. So you're really, really angry. You're really, really pissed off about something that happened. And instead of reacting, you actually have a couple choices about what you could do now. So choice and emotion is really, really quite good. And then if you want to uh, bring it out even further, and this this is kind of what I think psychotherapy has become in our culture, which I think is really good, is when we talk about uh, when the chitta turns into like a mental process. So what is it? What is the behavior of mind? So when I'm frustrated, I'm in the whodunit state of mind. I'm really, really frustrated in who did it. So there might be blaming or there might be looking to whose fault is it. There might be, uh, there might be self-blame. There might be self-criticism. There might be self-judgment. So looking at thinking as different types of processes. What's, so what is some destructive kind of thinking that we can get into? You know, what is the kind of thinking we get into that doesn't lead to cooperation, that doesn't lead to wellness, that doesn't lead to connection, that leads to cutoff, or defensive, uh, minimizing, justifying. There's a range of those whole things that we do. Uh, and a lot of it's, uh, is that it can be a type of, we want to defend ourselves. Uh, but sometimes, I know sometimes that can be very defensive, and I don't even know what I'm defending. My right to be arrogant? I deserve to be arrogant and entitled right now because you have inconvenienced me. It's like, whoa. Okay. I travel a lot, so I see this stuff at the airport like you wouldn't believe. It's like, you know, when the flight gets canceled and everybody runs over to the desk to, like, give the poor lady on the other side of the desk. I'm like, that's not... Being a total jerk and arrogant and entitled, like entitled people at the airport, I'll just sit back and watch them like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, she did not make the plane not work. And then they have this whole story. Well, I have to. It's just like, I can't believe it. I just go there. I'm going to try to be as nice as possible. I usually end up getting a room or I get like, I get stuff. <laughs> and sometimes I even apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. It's like, but like we see this a lot of times, people get really, 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 really into it, uh, being inconvenienced in that sense of entitlement. And um, you know, don't you understand how important it is for me? I'm like, yeah. Everybody, nobody at the airport wants to be at the airport. People don't just go to the airport to hang out. Everybody at the airport is trying to go somewhere else, right? So it's like they know that you don't want to be there. You know, so when I travel, I watch this stuff. So and it's like human behavior is so profound to me. So I could tell funny stories about Chitta all day, but I think I'll stop and uh, want to thank you for listening. And we do have a we may have by maybe ten or fifteen minutes left. If you have any questions about some of this, uh, some of these ideas and this way of practice, I uh, be happy to hear what they are because it's it's something that's been very interesting to me. So thank you so much for coming out tonight and listening.